This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the very best bits of today's show. It is a Monday morning, 6th of March, and a special show for you today because we're live from Abu Dhabi Global Market. Why? Well, they've got a big legal event here called Resolve, and it's about dispute resolution. We're going to hear from Linda Fitzalan, Chief Executive of ADGM Courts, about that a little bit later on. We're also going to be looking at some big economic stories, data out of China and Saudi Arabia. We'll dissect those from you. And breaking news this morning in Abu Dhabi, another company is going for an IPO. It's an artificial intelligence company spun out of the conglomerate G42. We've been getting the thoughts of the veteran investor Mohammed Ali Yassin. Finally, big story out of Dubai over the weekend. New rules and regulations when it comes to carbon emissions for hotels. Brandy's been talking to the regional boss of the Radisson Hotel Group, Tim Corden. All that to come. Good morning. We are indeed live down here at Abu Dhabi. Richard and Brandy with you this morning. Tom taking a couple of very well-deserved days off. And Rich and I are here to learn how to have better arguments, basically, or at least to get someone to step in and sort them out. Yeah, Resolve is, as its name suggests, it is about resolving disputes. They happen. One of the interesting things that they're going to be talking about today is that the nature of those disputes is changing as the economy changes. We know the you know, construction industry has been making many litigation lawyers wealthy <laughs> for many, many years. But you've got new funky stuff, haven't you? Like artificial intelligence, like robotics, like... Well, I'll tell you who is speaking here today, which is interesting. The boss of G42, mm-hmm. talking about artificial intelligence and looking at the agenda. And of course, they're making headlines this morning because they've announced another IPO from one of their AI subsidiaries. So uh, Marcus Muller-Habig uh, is speaking at 11.40 this morning, decoding AI and what it means. So there might be some questions about that coming up. And then uh, a little bit later on, one of his colleagues from G42, the legal director of investments, David Kavanagh, is speaking here right after him. So again, very prescient time for those guys to be here. Oh, it absolutely is. Presite.ai, rather, um, which sounds like it does what it says on the tin, is the subsidiary that they're going to be floating around 30% of the shares in in an IPO. Uh, It's a big deal. It's not their first rodeo. It's their second rodeo, and their first rodeo went really rather well um, with the data mobility company. Uh, This is a big data company. It's an analysis company. They do a lot of work, particularly for government here in the UAE, and they did as well for Expo in terms of analysing data and making predictions. We're going to hear more on that from the veteran stock market investor um, and uh, general go-to guy for uh, all things Abu Dhabi and IPOs here on the Business Breakfast a little bit later on, Mohammed Ali Yassin. The IPO story, of course, getting an awful lot of attention, uh, but also getting a lot of attention, some big economic stories that we've had out over the weekend, Brandy, in particular Saudi Arabia. PMI data was out and it was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. Look, two massive economies um, we've got numbers for or predictions for. One is China and, as you say, the other is Saudi Arabia. An eight-year high in terms of both the growth um, and where the uh, the private non-oil sector is in the PMI data. We've been speaking to the economist Ian Walters from Emirates NBD to get her reading on what's happening in the kingdom. The Riyadh Bank Purchasing Managers Index for Saudi Arabia rose to 59.8 in February from 58.2 in January. A value above 50 indicates that non-oil private sector activity is expanding. 
The February reading was the highest it's been since March 2015 and was driven by strong demand, with increases in the new orders, output, employment and prices subcomponents. Well, in order to get some insight into what's happening in China, we have crossed live to Shanghai this morning. Who are you speaking to? To Wei Xi Ji, who is an economist. He's director of the Economist Intelligence Unit in Shanghai. Now, over the weekend, we've got a big event happening in China. The Premier has been speaking and setting out a GDP forecast. 5%, or about 5% is what he said. It was not mm-hmm. a specific forecast, but about 5%. So we asked uh, Wei Siji, what exactly do we know about this forecast? This is announced by the outgoing China's uh, current Premier, Mr. Li Keqiang, in his uh, work report to the National People's Congress, setting the growth target of China uh, of this year, which is about 5%. This is actually lower than uh, our, and as well as many other international organizations, forecast of China's GDP growth of this year, suggesting that the government is setting a moderate tone in terms of achieving economic growth. Uh, we believe that this actually leaves uh, a lot of rooms for the government to implement uh, policy instruments to stabilize the economy instead of uh, stimulate the economy uh, through aggressive measures. Now, 5% is a good number for what is the world's second biggest economy, but it's not as good as we've been used to. We've been used to 7 and 8% throughout <laughs> the lifetime of the business breakfast. And we asked Wei Xi, given the scale now of China's economy, can we ever get back to those growth rates? It will be very daunting, uh, a very daunting task to actually get back to the old days where China is able to achieve a growth rate of over, for instance, 6%, uh, given the large scale of the economy at this moment, as well as the uh, intensifying external uh, environments uh, of China uh, and also the increasing uh, trends of deglobalization. And uh, China's economy grew by only 3% amid the uh, uh, zero COVID policy and the uh, intensifying sanctions, especially of tech sector, from the United States. And uh, after all, an average of about 4.5% annual growth rate for the next five decades will be a very optimistic uh, forecast of China's growth over the next few years. Well, the last thing I asked him about was, he mentioned it there, the zero COVID policy, because it's only a few weeks early December of last year that China effectively abandoned its zero COVID policy and went back to a much more normal operation of the economy. And we asked him, what difference do you see? The first few weeks after China's exit from zero COVID was actually very disruptive in terms of the uh, healthcare system nationwide, as well as the uh, disruptions that you brought to uh, production activities. However, China's recovery from the spread of the uh, pandemic actually is way faster than we had expected, compared, especially compared to many nearby regions. It only took China about a month, a little bit over a month, to fully recover from the uh, abandon of all the pandemic containment restrictions. And now at this moment, uh, we are seeing that economic activities are almost back to normal consumption as well as production activities recovers substantially pretty close to the pre-pandemic level already. And in terms of, for instance, transportation activities, we are now observing a level that is even higher than the pre-pandemic level across the nation, suggesting a very optimistic year in terms of recovery as we're looking ahead. That's Wei Si Ji. He's an economist with the EIU in Shanghai. 
Still to come on the business breakfast this morning. Looking at the fine art of a dispute, we have Linda Fitzalan, Chief Executive of the Abu Dhabi Global Market Courts. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. The Chief Executive and Registrar at ADGM Courts, Linda Fitzalan. Linda, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. My pleasure. So Thank big, you for having me. Big gig today more more, what was it brandy's phrase more lawyers than you can shake a contract at totally going to be joining (laughs) us here why did you feel the need to have an event like this what was the kind of problems that you were trying to solve yeah um not so much problems but more so absence absence of uh, presence of the incredible Abu Dhabi dispute resolution profession so we thought what was missing was a forum or a unique platform that could shine a light on the work that they do um, for clients across the world in the most extraordinary deals that take place in this country and particularly in Abu Dhabi so we're bringing together the world in dispute resolution here in ADGM to hear from clients and lawyers about the biggest issues that they're trying to solve in terms of dispute resolution. A big focus is on new and emerging industries, things like artificial intelligence and Web 3.0, where I guess like a lot of people, you, you have to make this stuff up. On, on, on the hoop. That's your job, isn't it? To invent new legislation. You do, absolutely. And there's no doubt about it that the current regulatory frameworks and the legal systems are stretched. They're now retrofitting them for what we're seeing in that space with Web3 is a challenge. So that's one of the big topics of conversation today at Resolve. And of course, you, you're, you're Abu Dhabi Global Market, you run the courts here, but this, the people in oh, New South Wales and Australia, your home country, are wrestling this. People in lawyers in New York, where you've worked before, are wrestling with this as well. To what extent is this, is this global? entirely global. So on our Web3 panel, for example, we have an extraordinary lawyer who's come in from New York, who's actually cutting edge and leaving some of the most extraordinary cases uh, in that jurisdiction at the moment. Um, we have our homegrown people um, and London as well. So the whole conference is about international dispute resolution for the benefit of the local community and because we're sitting in an international financial centre. Well, so explain the role of ADGM courts because we have many different legal forums, don't we, in, in the UAE. We're based in Dubai, so we know DIFC and the courts there. Of course, Abu Dhabi Global Market, you've been running the courts here for nearly a decade now, haven't you? Seems extraordinary. And then you've got what I might simply call the, the onshore legal system as well. So how does that, how does that all work? Uh, it all works incredibly well is the simple answer to it, but we are common law courts, so a direct application of English common law within Abu Dhabi, seamlessly mixing with Abu Dhabi Judicial Department, um, which is a civil law system, but there are fewer gaps than people think in terms of the two systems. Um, And we work very closely and very collaboratively with Abu Dhabi Judicial Department, as we should do. Um, The two sister judiciaries are important for investor and business confidence in Abu Dhabi. So what happens if it's a dispute between an onshore company in Amal Quain and a company that's registered in Abu Dhabi Global Market? Where, where does that dispute get resolved? Does it go to the Amal Quain courts? Does it come to ADGM courts? How do you st- solve that? I hate to be a lawyer about this, but it does depend upon their contractual terms um, and the nexus. So what is the, the nexus of the dispute? So unfortunately, as a lawyer, I'm going to say it depends. <laughs> but um, one important part about that, though, is there may be two parties from outside ADGM, but our founding law, our founding law allows parties 
that have no connection with ADGM to select ADGM courts and ADGM arbitration for dispute resolution. So that's, um, that's quite an important part of our jurisdiction, particularly given the strategic location of Abu Dhabi, midway between East and West. It's a neutral zone that parties from across the world can select for dispute resolution. So you could be based in Singapore and you could decide that if and signing a contract with a company in Nigeria, you could both decide that ADGM would be your dispute resolution centre of choice? Absolutely. Let's talk about someone you're interviewing later on today. We've got lots of lawyers here today. One of them was also the Secretary of State of the United States for four years and a presidential candidate, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Why is she here? What, what does she bring? She brings to this forum her life in the law, her insights, comparing what she did back in the law, what her view is now on how lawyers should be adapting to changing times across the world, and also hopes for the future. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the past for her, what she's drawn on that for her extraordinary career in public service and where she sees the world going um, through some of the most amazing projects that uh, she is involved with, particularly a, a production company that she set up with her daughter called Hidden Lights. Um, amazing work that has been done. And of course, the um, Clinton Climate Initiative that all of that is what we're going to touch upon. It'll be an exciting interview and an immense privilege for me. Having seen her speak, she is um, an immensely interesting speaker with lots to draw on from her career, lots of anecdotes, and I think that's really important for an audience to see where she's been and what they can draw from her experience. What do we know about her legal career? Obviously, I know her as a public figure, mainly in politics as First Lady, as Secretary of State, as presidential candidate, and, and most people will be the same. I'm, I'm 50 years old, so you know, for most of my adult life, she's been a public figure. But before that, she was a, a working lawyer. What do we know about her career? Her career was dedicated, interestingly, to children. Her first job after law school was in the Children's Defence Fund because she felt incredibly committed and driven to ensuring that the challenges that children were having were met and to see how the legal system served those children, either well or not so well. Throughout her legal career, she did enormous work in pro bono advocacy work. So very much that part of her career was socially based, was public service based and for women and children. Looking forward to that interview very much indeed, as a lot of people will be. Briefly, before we let you go, I mentioned that it's, I was looking at your CV earlier and, and I was surprised that you've been here eight years now, since 2015, so nearly a decade. I didn't realise that ADGM had been around for nearly a decade or so. I think of it as being relatively new, but obviously we're regular visitors now, so my eyes are being opened. How has that eight-year journey been for you? Brilliant. Totally brilliant. Um, amazing in terms of enormous privilege for me to have Greenfields, to set up a, a common law court f from nothing, essentially. And fast forward eight years on, we have just announced a blockchain solution for enforcement of judgments, mediation in the metaverse. We have an e-platform that allows us to connect with parties across the world seamlessly. Um, so... It's been a fantastic journey in terms of transforming judicial services when you have the luxury and the privilege of um, starting up a system. Mediation in the metaverse. I'm going to write that one down and use it in general conversation a little bit later on today. Busy day for you, uh, Linda, so we're going to let you go. 
pre not only are you running the show, you've also got Hillary Clinton to interview later on. So thank you indeed, Chief Executive and the Registrar at ADGM Court, Linda Fitzalan. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Within the past hour and a half or so, news that G42, as you just heard, planning a second stock market listing. Delighted to be joined in our pop-up studio here in Abu Dhabi, at Abu Dhabi Global Markets, by Mohammed Ali Yassin, Capital Markets Advisor and Specialist. Mohammed, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Richard. Welcome to the capital. It's nice <coughs> to be here. All the action is here at the moment. Adnock Gas IPO is barely settled, and yes. we've got another one this morning. We'll drill into the G42 on the Adnock Gas in a bit more detail. But more broadly speaking, how significant is this wave of IPO activity we're seeing? I think it's important <coughs> what we've seen since the beginning of the year that the market activity, the momentum has slowed down from what we saw last year. Most of the results that came out were expected and people were waiting for the dividends. And I think the fact that they started announcing these IPOs towards the end of Feb, early March, to coincide with the time where the investors are getting their the dividend distribution from many of those companies and taking the attention into new sectors and to new uh, companies, I think is important. And we see the kind of appetite of investors, what we saw with Adnoc. What's important for me, really, it's, it's not how many times oversubscribed. It's actually that the appetite to do that, you're able to do raise $9 billion and and in easy. And I think the other companies are seeing this kind of money and they're going to be encouraged and they're going to try and come make sure that the investor continues to invest this into this IPO, which is a positive diversion from the maybe older, more heavier companies which are in the market at the moment. Well, and that, if we look at these two IPOs in Abu Dhabi, they couldn't be more different, could they? Add not gas. That's exactly what it says on the tin, sure. drove past Adnock headquarters <laughs> this morning, and yet this company, the, this data analytics company sure. from G42 is not a household name, and I suspect a lot of people, myself included, don't know exactly what it does. Uh, that makes three of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but in, general, in general, what I read, you know, um, G42 is like a holding company which invests in many companies in various sectors. And this seems to be the uh, w one of those sectors, the AI. I think the AI is a buzzword now. Everybody wants to go there. And it's a bit different in terms of the structure. It's more like a, I would say it's a, it's a listing of a private placement rather than actual IPO like where you, you got Adnock. Um, you're going to get the retail to subscribe, but you also get in these kind of IPOs like Bayonet. There was some some kind of subscription which already been assigned to certain people or asked to, you know, were able to get it. Of course, what this will be, people are going to be looking at Bayonet and comparing to this Bayonet when it listed, it was sold for something around just above a dirham and then it went up to, on the first day, it was like four dirhams. So you, so you did this amazing return, which you don't see in the other IPOs. Today at 378, as you're still making money if you subscribe, but if you bought it at the high around 6.5, you're today losing about 30-40%. So you have to be careful about these kind of IPOs. That's why I would separate them or differentiate them from what the Adnoc Al Gas, because this is a higher volatility. Well, let's talk about who's not listing companies. We haven't seen many entrepreneurial companies grow and then list. Most of the names we talk about have got some kind of government or semi-government backing. Correct. We haven't seen, I don't know, one name that springs to mind is, for example, Sky Kurtz, Abu Dhabi-based business person, has farms in Alain and elsewhere. Yes. He's growing tomatoes in the desert. We haven't seen that kind of company, Donna Benson, when she sold The Entertainer. We know it was more than $100 million. Sure, she didn't list it on the stock market. It was bought by investors in Bahrain and so on. And it's true, and this is one of the signs we see here, is that investors are more comfortable if the government is a majority or a government entity is a majority shareholder. And that's why I think the government today, 
is actually taking these companies direction. It's actually moved a bit into the private sector. It, it establishes these companies. They gives them the money uh, and funds to go and uh, invest in other companies, other markets, and then they come and sell part of it. We could have one of those family-based companies, which is less government, in Ansari Exchange. I think that should be also coming sometime in March. Some of the numbers have been out already, but it'll be listing on the DFM. So that could be an interesting test and to see the comparison between a government entity or a, a family office. And if that succeeds, then you can get, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of other options that could be there coming to the market. It, it, is that pipeline very strong at the moment? I know we, we get the announcements this morning, but a lot, a lot of them, due diligence will be done, they'll be doing it, and then they just won't come to market. But the pipeline's yeah. good. No, it, the, the names we just talked about, they are confirmed. Um, you know, and, and especially in Abu Dhabi, when you have a fund like the IPO fund, 5 billion dirhams, which is willing to come in together with people like uh, government EIA and some other entities which always come in, IHC when it comes in or some of its companies. So that gives you a kind of a baseline where you know that coming into the market, you're going to get a certain uh, level of coverage, which is good. Not all of them will be a, a adnog gas 50 times that kind of size. And I think the market don't need those kind of to be all of them the big, because you need to diversify that liquidity into smaller companies to grow the capital markets and have diversity in terms of sectors that are there available in the market. To what extent are foreign investors, funds in Boston or Singapore, investing in these listings? In the Adnoc ones, I think you're going to get many. In pre-site and whatever, it's going to be more initially local. They're going to want it to come to the market. They want to see it listing in the market. They want to see some financials. Because some of those companies, if you looked at, for example, uh, Bayanat, you'll find that it has negative cash flow. It does good growth and it does good profits, but it's still in a growth mode. And therefore, a lot of the cash is being invested and it needs lots of financing. So they will come in, but maybe more into the more established ones like the Adnog Gas than those other ones. So in terms of, of secondary trading on the secondary market, how different is that now than, say, two or three years ago? Or even, let's compare it to 2019, pre-pandemic. <laughs> what, what are we seeing? You've been oh. a stockbroker in this town <clears throat> for many years. The, the market, I mean, today we've consistently been seeing trading in the ADX, for example, of one and a half to two billion every day if you don't get upper there. That is like ADX before pre-2019 was about tenth of that. So the volume is higher in terms of the liquidity is higher in terms of the investor appetite. It's even much more positive. And part of it, I think, is what happened in last year in the Ukraine war is a lot of the investment looked at the UE markets and the GCC as safe havens. Macroeconomically, we still are going very strong. We have positive GDP growth. Last year was the highest in Saudi and UAE in, in probably emerging markets. You still have oil at $80 plus, which means there's high liquidity. You still have companies which are being sold, in my view, some of them at the lower end of the range, uh, just to it, a part of encouraging people to come in. And they have the highest yields you have in markets. Today, investors want a yield when interest rates are high. And therefore, when you can get a 6 and 7%, I think it's a very attractive uh, proposition for any investor anywhere. 30 seconds left. Can't let you go without congratulating you on your football team's performance last <laughs> night. Mohamed Ali Yassin and They're Randy and I have known each other 20 years. <laughs> I'm a Manchester United fan. Who do you support? Liverpool. Go on, you can what, what a great night. The magnificent seven last night. But it's one in a lifetime, Richard. It's okay. <laughs> seven nil to Liverpool. I don't know if we're going to see this result again in our lifetime, you and I. Mohamed was uh, kind enough to bring Brandy and I in a coffee this morning. Where, oh, and where I appreciate it. What did you try and get me? Seven up. A can of seven <laughs> up. <laughs> you don't like fizzy drinks. <laughs> I, I, I will not be drinking it today. <laughs>
Mohammed, awesome to see you. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Today. Thank you. And enjoy me. the rest of the Resolve Conference. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The Dubai Department of Economy and Tourism relaunching a revamped carbon calculator for the hotel industry. Very pleased to be joined on the line by a hotelier. Tim Corden is COO for the Middle East and Africa at the Radisson Hotel Group. Tim, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. What does this calculator mean for the hospitality industry and for Radisson? I think we welcome it. I mean, any any kind of more formal measurement of the impact of the tourism industry on the environment can be can be welcome because what gets measured gets managed. And if we if we know the damage we're causing or the impact that we're having, we can manage that and try and reduce it as much as possible. I mean, we we at Radisson we're we're fortunate that we take a leading role here. Our first environmental strategy was was defined in 1989, um, back when our with our Scandinavian roots. So it's something we've always uh, had close to our hearts and I, and I think we do a good job of. What are you doing here in the UAE to reduce your carbon footprint? There's a whole basket of activities and it goes right from grassroots training. So people, when they're employed in our hotels, have to go through a mandatory responsible business training program, which tells them a little about how what they can do in the hotels about managing waste, about managing um efficiency of the building, about managing resources in the hotel, but also their impact in the community too. Um, so that's at the grassroots, but then we also work with our asset managers, the owners of our hotels, um, to implement the most sustainable building practices we possibly can. And we're accredited with uh, with LEED, for example, and uh, our, I'm proud to say that our Radisson Red Hotel at uh, Dubai Silicon Oasis is a LEED Gold certified building, which means it's minimized the, uh, the building construction impact on the environment, but also the ongoing impact on the environment. We also measure very, very carefully uh, the impact of every single one of our hotels. And we're proud to say that in the last 10 years, we've reduced our carbon impact by over 50%. We're committed to have carbons, carbon neutrality by 2050. And we've got an interim goal, a science-based interim goal, to reduce by a further 30% by 2030. And we're well on target to achieve those goals. How do you control, though, the bit that you can't control, namely the hotel guests? How do you stop people from, I don't know, leaving the water running, popping the AC on 17 degrees and throwing towels and sheets around like a crazy woman? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a fine line between prescribing to guests how long you can stay in the shower for and, uh, and having a, a great experience. So we, we try and communicate with our, with our guests about our sustainability ambitions and we try and communicate what's important that they can do. So we do run a program, a fairly, fairly simple one called Just a Drop, uh, which asks people not to drop their towels. Um, so if you've used a towel and you're happy to use it again, then, then please you know, hang it up in the bathroom and we won't replace it. The savings that we make from that are then donated to a charity called Just a Drop. And so far we've helped to provide clean drinking water for life for 29,000 children around the world. We also have a, a green housekeeping program, which asks guests, if you're happy to, if you're staying one or two nights and you're happy uh, not to have your, your room serviced uh, by housekeeping whilst you're there, then we also offer a saving and we donate that to charity too. How much of a difference, I've always wondered, Tim, does the not washing of the, the towels every day actually make? It's quite significant, actually, because towels are really heavy duty when it goes to the laundry. So the amount of water and detergent needed to launder those mounts up really, really quickly. So, yeah, it's a pretty significant amount. I don't have the number right now, if that's what you're asking for, Brandy. I'm sorry about that. But it is. I know it's the, the key metric in terms of laundry. The other, the other thing we've done is we've taken a lead across the industry. And, uh, you know, when we look at what Radisson do, and I'm sure the other hotel brands 
would say something similar. We have pretty robust programs to minimize our, our impact in the environment. But we're an unregulated industry today. So we went to the World Tourism Travel Council, or WTTC, and, and we, we put together something called Hotel Sustainability Basics, which we think can provide an industry-wide measure for what uh, a sensible level of um, sustainability basics, exactly that, can be in a hotel, what the minimum expectation should be, so that every hotel globally can subscribe to these and, and we can self-regulate as an industry. So far, we've got about 50,000 hotels across multiple different organizations joining Hotel Sustainability Basics, and we think that's going to have an enormous impact across the whole sector. We've got one minute left with you, Tim. What about the other thing that can be hard to control, the scope three emissions that come from you know, partners, your, your supply chains, your delivery people? How tightly can you control those? It's a challenge, particularly in a really geographically diverse part of the world like the Middle East and Africa. So, so what we do is we, we work with our partners, our owners, and we have a really strong uh, procurement network. And as part of that procurement network, we, we look at the suppliers that we're using, not only in terms of how much carbon they're producing, but do they subscribe to all of the criteria that we ask? And that's, of course, about child labor, clean working practices, um, and we only then approve a supplier into our hotels when they've been through all of those hoops, if you like. And, and that makes actually it quite difficult sometimes, but we're fully committed to doing that and living by what we say. So you can be confident when you go into a Radisson hotel that the procurement networks that we've organized are absolutely right for the community, and not just environmentally, but what the impact on people is as well. Tim Corden, COO for the Middle East and Africa at the Radisson Hotel Group, speaking to us this morning about one of our top stories, one of our top headlines, and that is the Dubai Department of Economy and Tourism relaunching a revamped carbon capture calculator to help the hospitality industry measure its own footprint. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.